0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We're particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this episode. I am really glad that you could join me. This week we get to speak with Louise Aitken, who's the CEO of Akina Foundation, and we have one of those fascinating conversations that we sometimes get on this podcast. So we're going to talk with her about what it was like growing up as a twin, finding her own identity when she moved to Brazil at age 17, and then the heart of the conversation really comes back to social enterprise in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And we spend a long time talking about that. In fact, this is the longest podcast I've recorded to date. Here's some excerpts from things that we talked about in our conversation. And, right.
1: and, and that was great for me to see. And you know, I was kind of constantly thinking, is this the model? Mm. You know, have something alongside a business mm. which delivers good, you know, charitable giving, partnerships, uh, corporate social responsibility programs, or actually is there a, a fundamentally diff- better way? And I um, was lucky enough to go to... Uh, launch Launchpad, the, um, mm. the 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 first accelerator program, I went to the launch day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, wow, there is another model. <laughs> it's called social enterprise. Uh, and so when I... Um, so you
0: remember that quite clearly? Yeah. Clearly, it, it's become quite a big part of your life now. It's a huge you part of, of my life. Like, yeah, it was just like... the oh, slide that says social enterprise. Well, that people were talking about
1: it. I was like, gosh, this business, it does good. You know, right. well, the definition of social enterprise... Um, you know, internationally, we've got to determine what it looks like for New Zealand. Um, You know, is the term social enterprise Mm. relevant in a New Zealand context? I think that we're, you know, we're in an extraordinary position um, to be able to honour what actual, you know, enterprise has been in our history. Um, You know, Māori enterprises have been trading for, you know, centuries and always at the heart of that. Was the social and the environmental outcome for mm. the iwi, mm. uh, for the hapu, and that's gosh, what a thing to honour, what yeah. a thing to incorporate into how we bring a modern approach um, to that, and and what do we learn from you know modern Māori enterprises, and mm. you know there's some extraordinary organisations who, you know, 500 year strategies mm. where it is about guardianship, it is about handing it to the next generation mm. to contribute. It's that tikanga, right? Yeah, the, it's, the, it's absolutely. The, it's, the legacy and Exactly. The, and, you know, we've got the opportunity as New Zealand where, you know, the international social enterprise sector is looking at us.
0: Well, I know you're going to enjoy this chat with Louise, so we're going to get straight into it. The only thing I'll say is that if you do enjoy it, keep in mind that this is one of more than 70 different episodes that have been recorded with people in New Zealand doing things a little bit differently. So I've talked with dozens of social enterprises over the last year that this podcast has been going, but also spoken with a wide variety of other people who I think are interesting and doing good in our world. So you might want to check those out. This podcast is about to hit 20,000 listens total across all of the episodes, and it's really through people like you who are listening, spreading the word about it, that this has grown. So thank you. Now let's get into this interview with Louise. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Louise Aitken, who's the CEO of Akina Foundation. Thank you for joining me.
1: Kia ora, Stephen.
0: Um, It's wonderful to have you here because we've known each other quite a while now, really. Yeah. I guess social enterprise world is quite small in New Zealand. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I've been waiting my turn patiently. Yes. Well, it's (laughs)
0: wonderful to have you on. And this is the type of show, the episode that I love because I know we're going to have a fascinating conversation because I've heard a little bit of your story, um, but not the whole story. And one of the things I love on this podcast is that we get to go a little bit deeper with people and get beyond just what you do right now, we actually go back and trace it and try to unpack, you know a bit of the background. So we're definitely going to be talking a lot about social enterprises in right. New Zealand yeah. now and in the future. But I'd love to start just by going back with your own background mm-hmm. and just describe where you're from. Uh,
1: so I'm from Wellington. Um, I actually live now. 600 metres from the house I grew up in, so it is certainly wow. my Tūranga wai wai. Um I live in a suburb where my grandparents moved into that suburb in 1951, and my uncle still lives there. Wow. Uh, my son's placenta is there, so it is, um, yeah, it's truly home for me. Um, I, it took me 15 years to get back. I moved back to Wellington three years ago, so mm. it's wonderful to, to be Truly, back home. Mm. Yeah.
0: And so, growing up there, I guess take us back to your childhood. Um, what What was it like? And what were you like as a child? What type of things did you enjoy?
1: Well, first of all, I'm an identical twin, oh. so that probably There's explains a bit. There's <laughs> another me. There is another me. Uh, and so, my sister Natalie uh, and I were the only where that she's my only sibling um so we um just used to having a twin not a singleton right uh and we my parents um my father was from scotland and my mother um came via ireland and we yeah we just grew up in a really um a real foreign world. We had my, all dad's friends were all from mm. the UK, um, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, England. And we were just so used to having, um, you know, just this diversity, just right. this thought of what. Um, you know that people came to New Zealand for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad left Scotland when he was quite young uh, and looking for a better life, and um, we created that in Wellington with my mum. And it was, um, yeah, it was a wonderful upbringing. We my mum came came from well, she comes from an irish back uh, irish catholic background mm-hmm. so we went to catholic school in wellington mm-hmm. uh, and then moved into university from there uh, and it was yeah i mean wellington just if you if you grew up there you know, and you lived we live right in the heart of the city so it's a relatively small town mm-hmm. uh, and you you know, deep friendships that were all associated with not only the suburb in which you lived but also the school Mm. uh, that we went to and yeah it was fantastic always out running doing stuff lots of exercise lots of sports yeah um i went to a a a private semi-private catholic girls school Mm -hmm. um, that was really about the academic but also the sport and so always doing lots of different stuff i was into middle distance running, mm-hmm. rowing, mm-hmm. Uh, hockey, all of that, which was a good way to go outside of the school that we were in as well. So particularly rowing, uh, where you were with the boys' schools as well. So right. you got to you know, really focus on forming you know, really deep friendships as yeah.
0: well. And Wellington is such a unique city, isn't it? Because it's kind of bounded by the yeah. water, the mountains. Like, I mean, it's a downside, I guess, potentially, is that there's not many ways in and out. Um, no, they're I- just if hopefully was, sorting that out. But yes. But, yeah, I mean you... <laughs> but, it's, it, but it has its own unique character is what I does, mean. And, and it does. And it I speak having lived there. Yeah. I, I have an accent, but I actually li- grew up in New Zealand and lived three years in, Wa- in Wellington mm. from 2001 till 2004. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was like a, a... And that's where I met my wife. So it was like a very special place, you know, and it has a different feel an unusual feel being a capital city as well.
1: It, and it also the centre of the city mm. is really small. So mm. it's compact. It's yeah. easy to get around. Uh, and you know, you're, you're walking all the time. Mm. The public transport was probably better <laughs> than it is today. Uh, but you know, there's a real sense of yeah. um, a small town in a capital city, which yeah. is great. Um, and
0: can I just ask you a question?
1: Mm.
0: When do you become aware that you're a twin?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's probably much later on in life that you realise how special it is. Mm. So um, I went on a student exchange when I was 17. Right. Uh, took off to Brazil, and um, it was the first time I'd ever been a singleton. It was the first time I'd, people knew me and didn't know my sister. Right. So probably at 17, I realised yeah. that I was a twin. Yeah. Um, and I think also because we don't have any other siblings. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was like to have a sibling that wasn't a twin right uh, and yeah, so that was your context right? that was That's my context yeah and you yeah. just expect that everyone is like that yeah you know <laughs> the good and the bad um but I think certainly going off for a year mm. and being um on my own as such mm. was hugely um important to me it kind of defined who I was Yeah. Um, because I was we were outside of each other's shadow, mm. and. I came back to New Zealand quite different than what I was when mm. I left, uh, and that was good because you know you have to evolve into your own person. Yeah. Um, and coming from a relatively small place where school was an important part of you know our lives, to be known only as the twins, yeah, um, it meant that when I returned from Brazil and went straight back into or straight into university, I had my own mm. per- personality, my own being as Mm -hmm. such it was still hugely important and it still is today to be a twin Um, my 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 sister and I now live we've lived apart longer than we have together so she's been 22 years outside of New Zealand I see Um, so when
0: you just describe when you're in Brazil and um, you know discovering who you are what what shape does that take you know like when you come back how is it that you were different
1: yeah, some people actually remarked that I became more similar to my oh. sister. Um partly because she was the more confident one. She was the um the louder one and I was seen probably a little bit in comparison to her. I was a bit of the the, the geek, the studier. Mm-hmm. Um she was much more of the social um the you know the connector mm-hmm. and um and so when I returned people would often say gosh you're even more similar now which was interesting because I think we both got confidence in who we were at mm. you know 17 18 and then went into university study different things right uh, after university my sister took off to the UK and I remained in New Zealand for a bit so that was good that we became our own people mm. um but it's wonderful being a twin. I wouldn't have it any other yeah. way. You know, we we argue well, like anything, but that's what that's what you're meant to do with. A
0: twin. Yeah, and I mean siblings. It has a special relationship anyway. You know, like mm. that's your context, what you grew up with. But having a twin that you've kind of, you know, you've been together the whole of your, like literally the yeah, whole yeah. of your childhood, right? Like yeah,
1: and we had, you know, it was it was a pretty fantastic childhood. My parents had always instilled that you know travel was important Mm -hmm. seeing other cultures experiencing other things so they did everything they could Mm -hmm. to enable that for us Um, my mum was uh, a businesswoman Mm -hmm. and uh, she surrounded herself with really strong women who to this day Mm -hmm. influenced me Mm -hmm. and that was really great to see my mum was the primary breadwinner as an example which Mm -hmm. was not Common. Yep. Uh, my dad was a builder and he worked, he did some fantastic things, but it was always mum who mm. was driving a career as yeah. such. Um, and it was fantastic. It was yeah. a really great upbringing and, and, and really inspiring for both me and my sister and the, and the things that we continue to do today.
0: Mm. Oh, that's great. And uh, one of my favourite movies, uh, particularly for my kids, because I've got young kids, is The Parent Trap. Which has the identical twins yeah. you know and they kind of switch places, is that something that you ever did?
1: Yes, do I want to admit about the <laughs> podcast going um, out uh, publicly? Yeah, I mean you, you you know you take advantage of what you've got right, yeah. and the fact that you could trick people and you could play some games um, I think was was always fun. Um, we did a few things which my parents picked up on because right. like for them we weren't the same right uh they could pick us you know they were probably the only ones that could pick us and at moments of anger when when we were little mum mm-hmm. we, would often caught you know catch herself by calling us the wrong name which we would find hilarious um but you know yeah the mum and dad certainly um could spot when we were Maybe doing things that we maybe shouldn't yeah. have been doing, but certainly the school system identified that um, it wasn't good to put twins in the same class right. um, as we were in, you know, sort of college. And I think to this day they probably do the same thing. So, yeah. um, you know, we I I will admit that I did sit a, a, you know a few tests for my sister on the subjects that I was good at. Right. <laughs> um, but as we you know grew older, it yeah. became. I think the thing with twins is often you you can recognize the fact that they've got differences but often people get they they forget which name goes with what difference i see so you can see that we're different But people confuse us because they're not too sure as the one with the longer hair is Louise or the one with the shorter hair is Natalie. So that type of thing Uh happens a lot. Um, But sometimes, you know, people would start talking to me and telling me things and I'd have to kindly interrupt them that I'm not Natalie. Yeah, you Um, think that I was there, (laughs) but I wasn't.
0: But leaving aside the twin aspect of your childhood, Mm. you mentioned your parents were immigrants. What... What shape do you think that um, took for you in in who you've become as a, a child of immigrants who moved to New Zealand from Europe?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. So my uh, my, my grandfather was from Galway, my um, mum's side, and then um, dad, obviously from um, you know pretty tough upbringing in, in Glasgow. And for us, it was just that was what was normal. It was normal to understand um, that particularly my dad chose to come to New Zealand for a better life right. and that instilled in us the importance of where we were from. Yep. Um, I'm very proud of where dad came from particularly and, and it was wonderful to go back and see where mum's family were from And but it was always about the pride of being from New Zealand because mm-hmm. that's what our family chose that this is the place mm-hmm. where we're from and, and it was a conscious choice it to was a move choice. And to the other side of the yeah. world to and for great, make great a reason yeah. great reason and also i think because particularly um, my parents friends growing up in wellington um, they were all you know at least one of every couple was was an immigrant right and they all came to start families and build a life and yes You know, they had ties back, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't often money was, you know, was tight. It wasn't often that people went home. If they did go home, it was probably for a sad reason, you Mm -hmm. know, somebody passing in their family. Um, And so it was all about you are connected and you are a community. Um, My dad was a Mm -hmm. big football player and he built his friendship around football in in Wellington. And so that's what we were just used to. So I'd never, you know, I was very proud that my sister and I Mm -hmm. were you know, my the, you know the first Aikens born in New Zealand. We were very yeah. very proud of that, and I think to this day we've never um, looked at at New Zealand as anything else but home. Yeah. R- even if you can only trace back, you know, um, yeah. at, you know one or two generations, and that's fantastic. That yeah. is, you know, um, my dad it took him thirty years to become a New Zealander, um, but when he got his New Zealand citizenship. He was extremely proud. Mm. He'd still mock us senseless about our accents, um, and my friends would mock him terribly because he was very hard to understand. Right. Um, but it was he, you know, it was his choice. It was where his home was, mm. um, and you know that was something I think during that time in the 1960s, mm. when so many British immigrants came to New Zealand, that their children. Mm connected so deeply to the country and that's you know certainly what i saw in my parents friends Mm. and their children yeah Yeah.
0: no that's really helpful Mm. it's an amazing thing to think about even not that long ago how far it was further than now you know like my my wife's um, father worked as a lecturer at university of auckland he's from the uk and he describes kind of taking six or seven airplane trips you know to finally arrive in auckland and he'd gotten the job via letter you know like Will I won't I? It takes a couple of weeks to find out and yeah. and now it's so instant, you know, exactly. communication.
1: Yeah, I mean my dad probably went back oh three times I think mm-hmm. in his life, went back home. Um, you know, and and there was a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Um but it was you know, the distance was yeah was significant far. and the cost was significant. Yeah. You know, it wasn't an easy thing to do.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we've kind of laid the groundwork here of your childhood and what things were like for you. Um, what happened next in terms of, you mentioned university. Is that what, where you yeah, went after int- you got back from Brazil?
1: Yeah, so I got back from Brazil. Uh, I'd already qualified and, mm. you know, registered at university through what was my sixth form results. Yep. And so I'd signed up to what courses I was going to do, everything, a year before mm. I went. And so I got back home Clearly this different person from Brazil. Went straight back into university and sort of got a bit of a shock going, gosh, is this really what I wanted to do? I was studying right. um, science. I was doing pre-med um, you know, it was based off the sixteen year old right. that I was that had making made decisions. A choice, versus, uh, uh, yeah, versus, versus an eighteen year old who who'd had a year
0: in Brazil. A year in a year Brazil. In, in Brazil. Yeah. And so And the Brazil experience must have been fascinating in terms of relationship and culture because it's very different.
1: It's very different. And mm. also the Brazil that I experience is very different from the Brazil that most people experience. Right. Um, I lived in a very, very small town mm-hmm. in um, the state of São Paulo, so the interior mm-hmm. de São Paulo. Mm-hmm. Um, about four hours north of the city. I was the first foreigner to ever live there. I live with a family who didn't speak a word of English. Mm -hmm. Um, It's good
0: for learning Portuguese. It was, yeah, (laughs)
1: somebody said to me, Louise, you're very quiet. And I said, you wait, (laughs) wait till I can speak. And it took me about three months um, to become fluent in Portuguese. And um, it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary time. Uh, There was an impeachment of the president during Uh that time. And so seeing that and seeing... A thousand percent inflation per month mm. seeing the creation of black markets that was about the US dollars that I had and mm. how it could benefit others um, because the family that I lived with would get paid once a month if they didn't spend the money by the week two it was it was worthless right and so yeah. it's how could I help them because I had this relatively small amount of money but it made a significant d- difference yeah. so I would go and trade it at the bank for for Brazilian money and then I would get a ticket back to say that I could then go and buy US dollars and that was the only way that you could mm-hmm. exchange money if you had previously exchanged money. So then my family could use that at the beginning of the month mm-hmm. and take their money, which was you know worth a good amount, quickly put it into US dollars mm-hmm. and then as they needed it, they would then go and trade it. So it was a completely different world than what I knew in yeah. New Zealand. Um, and so that was really interesting. Uh, it was interesting to see... It, I lived in a, you know, a relatively wealthy family um, in comparison, mm-hmm. but there was no telephone. Um, but they had a maid. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was just a completely different way of living. Yeah. And my parents, and I think now back, as, a, as now I am a parent, yeah. I took off at 17. I lived with a family with no phone. My mum and I had an <laughs> agreement that she would ring the grandmother... Uh, on the last day of every month at two o'clock, and I would answer the phone, and that was the phone. That, that was, was the, the contact in a month, and then it was all letters. Yeah. And so you think now with email and you know WhatsApp and Facebook and everything, Which, like you just couldn't even compare. If we start
0: talking more, we're going to sound like. So old. This this was 1992. You know, yeah, it was you know crazy. (laughs) Pre-email and you
1: think, well, what trust did they have in me? You know, what trust did they have in who I was to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. The trust that they had in the family that I was going Mm -hmm. to, you know, extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and it was it was that real growth moment in the fact that I had responsibility for myself i had friends i had this new family um it challenged me to live with a family that i didn't have deep history Mm. with or deep love with straight away Um, but they were so welcoming and so Mm -hmm. beautiful for and now i'm still part of their family yeah sure you know so yeah it was a really interesting time Um, and i'm really glad i went to brazil Mm -hmm. um it's it started a, a long you know, a love affair that i will always have with brazil yeah. and i've been back many times since then but you know to see a country and to be able to speak a language mm-hmm. to be able to connect with people was an extraordinary experience yeah. and, and one that you know will hopefully continue for the rest of my life
0: yeah that's really special i think it's so if if you're young and you get that opportunity like some people listening maybe debating should i or shouldn't i go overseas I agree with you completely, yeah. it expands your horizons. Exactly. So my father was a marine biologist, and so we moved to Chile when I was um, 12 years old, and we lived in Chile for a year. And so that experience, when I look back on my life, I think about who I've become in terms of the cultural, you know, just the the Latin culture is very different exactly. to Western culture. It's yeah. very, well, for one, it's very warm and embracing. Um, but, uh, yeah, just also seeing poverty in a way that I never had seen before mm. um, opens your eyes to to the world, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Yeah.
1: And you know, even just the space. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the you know, humongousness of it all yeah. was so well, extraordinary. particularly Brazil. Particularly it's Brazil, huge. you know. <laughs> and just travelling anywhere was you know, everything took a long time and it, but that was the great thing. And I think certainly being able to communicate. Yeah. Was the most significant thing. You mm. got to see a different Brazil, and yeah. like in, in any country you go to, if you can speak the language, and I, I've done this through through Africa. When I go to a Portuguese-speaking right um, country, you just immediately get a different experience, and yeah. and that's a phenomenal thing to yeah. have. You know.
0: So describe the seventeen-year-old Louise who's coming back and going to university, or eighteen-year-old maybe by this time, yeah. and you're you're studying sort of medicine type. Yeah, I did all the you
1: know the classic pre-med you know biology. Yep. physics statistics you know all of that and 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 i got more social as you do when you get to university made some great friends that are still mm-hmm. some of my best friends um, and just started to see more than just the inside of a book um, mm-hmm. probably to the you know detriment of my grades but and also was questioning is this really what i want to do so mm-hmm. um i i ran for student council which mm-hmm. was fun so i was on the student executive at victoria um in my second year with a bunch it was two of my very close friends and right. we, we you know we had some fun with that um did a lot of um you know social things i was i was doing a lot of skiing and snowboarding um but i also i knew that it you know i wasn't committing to the studies as much as i needed to so sure. um i actually decided to um Step away from university. I went, actually went back to Brazil for a bit, mm. uh, and you know that was good because it gave me a sense of okay, I've got to figure out what I want to do next. So mm. I came back home, yeah, and I'd been doing some some part time work for the New Zealand Police, and um, I was doing some work up at the national headquarters, mm. uh, working on some policy, uh, and I decided that um, you know maybe a sworn role within the New Zealand police was going to be my future, Hmm. which now I look back on and, and particularly my husband thinks it's hilarious, but, um, so I, I, um, you know, I started that I was working as well um, full-time yep. um, and that was really where I saw my life going um, I took the opportunity to go back to university and finish my degree but changed the degree I did a degree in criminology hmm. uh, and was really thinking that this is you know this is where it you know this is my career path um, getting into the police and then going through that yep. um, but then my dad got sick um, and I I looked after him, which was a real gift. It was a real moment in my life to be able to have that. Mm. Um, and then, when he passed away, um, I had I you know well, prior to him dying, I. Decided right. I can't wait for this news, this police thing. The the mm. um, you know the waiting list was very very long to mm. get into police college at that time, and they were looking for diversity particularly. Um, so I didn't quite hit the, the the targets at certain intakes, which was you know understandable. Mm. And um, so my sister had been working in call centres overseas, and she was talking about how you know call centres were mm. the future was something that was really starting up. Um, and so I started working for Inland Revenue at the mm. Business call Centre, wow. which was fascinating as the first job right. and real, you know, proper job. Uh, which was you're interacting talking with a lot of humans. Yeah, a lot of humans <laughs> yeah. and selling something. Well, you know, working on something that isn't that much fun. You're not selling holidays. Right. You're talking tax. And um, but it was great to see how a, um, a business work. It was a business call center, so we worked a lot yeah. with accountants, uh, a lot with the people talking on behalf of others. Mm. Um, and quickly um, they built this new call center, um, and I quickly moved from on the phones. Into a team leader role mm-hmm. and so my first taste of what it was like to look after and 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 support others uh, and in a really great environment there was I think 13 team leaders um, and we really worked well together and got to see how you could you know take something which was really tough that you dealt with really tough human mm-hmm. um, conversations every day but look after the people that were having those and so that was a great experience and got me into what you know sort of the business world was like Um, and then my dad passed away and and I always knew that once he would go I would need to step Mm. away and um, and figure out what his my life was without him Mm. so I took off to the UK after that. Um,
0: Can you just pause there for a second because I want to I don't want to gloss over your father's passing (laughs) tell me more about why it was so important or what it is that you learned from that
1: yeah um, because I think
0: these these points in people's lives are so critical, yeah. you know like that was a point for you um I'd just love to unpack a little bit more about
1: yeah it it certainly was I mean you know there's probably two or three big moments in somebody's life that yeah. you know puts you on a a different path yeah, and exactly. and that was certainly one. I was young, so mm. my sister and I were only twenty five when dad died yeah um I think he was sick for a long time right. um he he got sick, and then he had an operation. And the plan, you know, the hope that it was he was going to get better, mm. and so he wasn't able to work. They said you can't you can't work. He was a builder, right? So he's on the tools, and they said you can't work for a year. Um, and so he really got back into life. Um, he travelled. He did mm. really amazing things, and was thinking about who, his, you know, what his life would be. Right after this year, because they say you, if you get through a year, you're all good. I see. Um, about five weeks before the year um, came came uh, around, he the cancer was back, I and see. so um, and then he got very very mm. sick. So for me, it was I had.
0: But you'd seen a transformation in him when he'd yeah. been given the, the door yeah, well, he'd, of this may go away and what will you do with the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, and also my parents had separated sure. um, just before that as well. And so that was a really big thing. Yeah. It was an opportunity for me to step into a role that probably my mother would have taken if um, if they were still together. Yep. Um, and so that was a real, I always look at it as a real gift that I was given. Wow. Um It was extremely difficult, and the only way that, you know, you can get through it is by Mm. who you surround yourself with. So Mm. I had extraordinary friends, and and certainly my dad's, um, you know, my dad's friends and my mum's family were hugely, you know, they looked after me a lot. Yeah. But um, my sister was living overseas as well, so it was about her Making sure that you know she was able to contribute when she could, yeah. but also deal with her own situation and the fact that she wasn't back in New Zealand, yeah. and so that became really hard for her. Of course, so there was lots of dynamics within mm-hmm. that, um, but ultimately we celebrated Dad's life pretty yeah. well. And the one thing I found really extraordinary was um, at his funeral, and even in the days before he died, all my friends were there. Mm-hmm. You know, at his funeral, it was all about what he gave them as well, you know, which was extraordinary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And to be so young to I guess have seen that him go through that, you know, you're you're faced with mortality, aren't you? In in the yeah. sense of what will you do with the rest of your life? Well
1: also you're realising what's actually important. Yeah, you know, and it wasn't about what was in his bank account when he died. It yeah. wasn't about what assets he had. It yes. was about 300 or so people at his funeral it was about the mm-hmm. gift that he gave them mm-hmm. um and that was that's i think hugely important for somebody to see mm-hmm. um in their parent mm-hmm. because it wasn't necessarily only about him being a parent to my sister and i It was what he did with the people around him yeah so that was yeah yeah pretty amazing no i hear you mm-hmm.
0: uh, this comes out a lot in this podcast i interview a wide range of people but themes seem to come through and one of the themes well I try to say it as often as I can is when I'm 90 or whatever looking back on my life you know it's it's a little bit cliche but I'm not going to remember how much I was paid in an x year or Or whatever what project
1: you worked on yeah
0: it's going to be about relationship and people Mm. and how how you add value to your community and the people around you isn't it yeah yeah
1: yeah so yeah no, it was, that's really it good. was defining but also a bit freeing i think yeah you know? yeah,
0: yeah 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 that's really yeah, yeah. well i'm sure uh, everyone listening will be able to identify something in what you said yeah. so we'll move on um a little bit um otherwise we'll probably make each other cry right <laughs> we get too deep into it um so you're then your sister's overseas was that sort of the the next step for you or
1: well yeah so funnily enough when i got to the uk she wasn't there oh, right. <laughs> um, she was, she was <laughs> moved, had moved somewhere else so um but a lot of my friends you know the the whole you know yeah. pull from university, everyone heads over They'd to the UK. Um, so landed in London uh, with some really close friends there mm-hmm. um, and lived there, really enjoyed it. I got a fantastic job working at a telecommunications company running the, the call center um, okay. and it was a global call center. So spent a lot of time um, in in New York and Hong Kong mm-hmm. um, and in London and actually stayed with the same job the whole time I was in London, Wow. Um, which was pretty rare. Yeah. Um, but I was also, because I was that bit older, um i was there for a career i was there for an experience that mm-hmm. would propel me into you know the next thing when i moved back home rather right. than being there for you know to work the in the OE. local pub and, yep. and you know, and travel so i you know on the scheme of it I probably didn't do as much travel as what other people did mm-hmm. but i i got you know the certainly the the career progression mm-hmm. um that then helped and, me you and know. an
0: opportunity to travel that you wouldn't have had from Wellington, right? That's because right. Yeah, London to New York or wherever yeah, you were going. Yeah, and it was like, crazy. That's, that's you know, it
1: was um, it was during uh, you know, 9/11. So okay. I was um, you know, we had we had, I had team members who were on the phone to somebody in the South Tower as the plane wow. set, um, and I worked for a telecommunications company that was a wholesale company, so it was all about the telecommunications that was underneath the Twin Towers, which oh. was the world's basically you know that that's where everything came into so we quickly had to figure out what the response to keep telecommunications up and as a call center working with wholesale customers we were trying to connect quickly hong kong and london which had never been connected before um, because everything was routed through New York so it was a really interesting time yeah um and but loved it absolutely loved it and the plan was for me to um move to Hong Kong to remain with the company yeah um and but I had come home for my best friend's wedding and um I after the wedding my mum who was living in Christchurch at the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. um her and I took off to um the Fox Glacier and I always want I wanted to do a helicopter ride and my mum was a bit frightened of helicopters Mm -hmm. and so she said she was gonna she she said I'll stay on the ground and off you go and I took off in this helicopter and we did this um you know fly over Mount Cook and um there, was, there, were, had, there had been fires uh, in Australia and the whole of Mount Cook was black, the whole top of it um, with all the ash that had come over. Oh. And I was talking to this pilot and I just recall with such clarity, I turned to him and I said, I want to move home to New Zealand. And hmm. it, I had always thought I'd emigrated. I'd gone back to the UK and I was going to be there. Yeah. I, you know, I, It was never about going and coming back. Huh. And um, I got back off the helicopter and came in you know, a little airport in Fox Glacier and mum was standing there and I said, I'm going to move home. Huh. And my mum turned around and she goes, God, I should have gone up in the helicopter with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, happens. yeah, it was wow. crazy. It was just that this, this immediate pull, like huh. something in me was like, you need to be home wow. and interesting my sister has never ever had that her home's not in new zealand anymore her yeah. home is in the uk mm. and so i got back to um back to london and and did a restructure of my job and you know mm. my job moved to hong kong and i was like oh well i'm going to make myself redundant then so got an opportunity to travel through africa on the way home wow landed back in uh, in wellington on my best mate's couch and um it was like okay now I'm what? here, here I am, here I am. <laughs> Welcome, New and um, yeah, it was. You know, it was. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, it was. Subs- Can
0: I just ask then the flight that you took with, was helicopter up mm. around Mount Cook. What what do you think happened? Was it somehow subconsciously it just came out as words well, or? But, I like, think
1: I'd seen. I mean, certainly, you know, being at my best friend's <laughs> wedding in the Marlborough Sounds with all our friends there. Yeah. Um, seeing, the value I think, of maybe, the yeah, and, and also. A lot of them had returned back to New Zealand um, and were building these lives. And probably I didn't even recognise it at the time. Was that you know I was maybe ready to mm. do the same. Um, but you know it was just the the sense that this is home. Mm. This is actually where it's I want to be. You know, yeah. and um, it's
0: good it's good to unpack a little bit because I had similar things. I have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. And for me, it was always coming back and something about the light. In New Zealand, when I would get off the plane, I would just feel this sort of, I'm back, mm. you know, I'm I'm home. Even though I'd lived, because I was in London for three years, and then Japan, and then Sydney, it was always, New Zealand was always home to me, yeah, yeah. Um, and I always knew I'd come back eventually. It was just sort of the timing of, this OE was two years, and it became five, and then ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. so that's, yeah, really, so that's it's great, and that's I mean, amazing. I even
1: had the thought this morning, is that, for me to see the sea every day is such an important right. thing, yeah. and you know my sister lives in Bath, and mm. you know when Which is her a nice family place. Yeah. beautiful, yeah. but when her family see the sea, it means that they're on holiday. Right. For me, it's quite a different thing. I drive past it every day, you yeah. know. And so I just think that you y- you know you find out what's important to you, and you know yeah. make sure that that's incorporated in in your life. And yeah. and for me, it's being in New Zealand.
0: Yeah. And that time when you were in the UK and living there, like um and you sort of thought you'd emigrated from New Zealand, you said. Um, mm. Was that a partly, you know, your parents were originally from the UK and, like, you were stepping into an identity there? I
1: don't know. Or? I just think, you know, it was um, probably the expectation of, you know, a generation is that you everyone does their OE. Yeah. Um, but because I had the ability to stay, having a British passport, Yeah. Um, and I'd already started to build... career Right. it was just there was really no thought to think you know this has to lead on to something else you know that would take me back home Um, and yeah it was you know I I felt comfortable and so how many years were you there so I was there for four years um, and but you know it was certainly I knew in that moment it mm. was time to go i didn 't know what I was coming home to yeah. um, had you know thinking okay i'd been at a telecommunications company for all that time. Well, naturally, I would come back and work for what 's now spark you know, yeah. so I had a few conversations i'm like, oh yeah. not really too sure and so um a very good friend of mine that was um, in at university with me mm. um she worked at this thing called Fonterra, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what Fonterra was. It had right. just been formed. Just, yep. um, it was, you know, just and like I didn't two thousand one really, sort of two thousand two yeah. Um, and so I didn't really know uh, what that was. And she had said, "Oh, they're building a call centre up here. You mm. might be interested." And and I was like, oh, "I don't really want to run a call centre, um, but um, they needed some, but you know, some people to come in and do kind of, you know, continuous improvement, mm-hmm. um, looking at you know." big changes they were doing, mm. um, within systems and processes. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, sounds pretty good. Yep. Got in my little car and packed it all up and drove to Auckland. And then, you know, there I was living in Auckland. Um, wow. so yeah, just, you know, I think that, that, you know, the sliding door thing, I, the door opened and yeah. it was like, I've, you know, There's I've an got opportunity here. Yeah. And I was, I was single. It. I was, um, you know, it was the opportunity to say, sure. Yeah. You know, and, um, also, I had you know some really you know close friends living in Auckland too, so I knew that I wasn't it wasn't going to be unfamiliar. Mm. There was going to be a lot of um, you know connection and, and mm. friendships and you know that I, that I had there. So yeah. it was a, a a pretty easy decision to make and, yeah. and one that I'm very proud that I did make.
0: Yeah. yeah, and just the echoes from when your father passed away and the realization of relationship and and you know giving back, I guess, to the community was that any playing a part in those work decisions like going to work for Fonterra for example um
1: no I think um you know it certainly
0: because I want to contrast that with what you're doing now which I think
1: I probably I probably didn't um uh you know I I don't ever recall it being part of it I think that um you know, my mum, she was in Christchurch. Um, she was doing a lot of really cool stuff, um, mm-hmm. particularly with um, women from refugee backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, teaching English and, and doing things um, that were really inspiring. And mm. I was like, you know, but I think I probably thought that that was stuff that you did as volunteers. That was right. stuff, you know, so it w- it didn't really come into my. There was no social enterprise. No, but you did, then. you know, business, you know, the, Fonterra, and, yeah. you know, and, and it was a business, yep. you know. And so. Um, yeah, I you know, it was all about at that you know, certainly for the role that I had in, in the UK, um, I was on a really you know, I was on a career path. This was about corporate yeah. ladders, you know. Yeah. Um and so I jumped on that ladder yeah. and um yeah, and, and really but then took, you took a, a helicopter
0: ride and everything. Well, changed. certainly
1: I mean no, but even when I was in, in Fonterra, you know, it was um you know, I I had amazing opportunities mm. and really drove a career path right um, which was interesting you yeah know, um, interesting now to look back on. Really, yeah but
0: know. so just summarize a little bit of Fonterra because I'd love to get on to Akina and that role and yeah. what you're doing now. but what sort of things were you involved with at yeah, so
1: it? Yeah, so took off um, to uh, the US. Mm-hmm. Um, in between that time, um, my mum died. So um, I you know at that moment I had an, an extraordinary boss at Fonterra who said to me, um, and, and just do what you need to do mm. and so um, he let me walk away from the organization um, and mm. look after what I needed to look after and then return when I was ready and I always promised him I'd pay it forward right that he was so kind cool. and looking after yeah. me so I've got a uh, you know a lot of credit to give out to somebody else you know yeah. um, which is wonderful that I can now be in the position to do that um, mm. but I you know took off to the U.S. Um, got married uh, which was amazing and um, moved um, up to Chicago with Fonterra. Right. Amazing experience with four years up there during yeah. the Obama years um, which right. was great in Chicago and got to see Stan at Grant Park when he came out um, mm. and that was you know, an extraordinary moment. Um, and then I started looking after, I was selling stuff, um, so looking after some big customers um, mm-hmm. and ended up looking after Coca Cola as a customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, returned home to New Zealand, um, wanted to have a Kiwi baby, not an American one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had um, my son in Auckland and then really, you know, made a, a tough decision uh, about the fact that I couldn't continue. Hmm. Being in a, in a global account role um, hmm. with a small baby, um, the travel was significant. Right. Partly because you know Coca Cola aren't, aren't based in Auckland. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, how so yeah, how inconvenient. <laughs> so you know, it was it was a lot of commitment, and I yeah. think that you know. Um, it was, it was an easy decision to say that somebody else needed to take um, step into that, and, sure. and the role shouldn't have been based in New Zealand. So um, in that moment, it was like, okay, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had quite a lot of um, uh, engagement with the uh, one uh, extraordinary woman who uh, was running the corporate social responsibility and the sustainability team at, at, at Fonterra, and so mm-hmm. she asked me to look after the, our Fonterra work for schools um, mm-hmm. as it rolled out nationally, and um, you know what a door opening that was, um, and that really led me to ākina. right um, And certainly, probably the most uh, impactful thing mm-hmm. was when I started looking after Kickstart Breakfast, which is the partnership between Fonterra and Sanitarium, and then we brought mm-hmm. the New Zealand government into that, providing breakfast to schools right across New Zealand. And mm-hmm. and to see the impact of what a bowl of food could do mm-hmm. in a loving environment, as the schools would provide, and and to see how it could change Mm. somebody's life in that moment and it was um yeah it was pretty extraordinary um it also um gave me the opportunity to to get a sense of you know what sustainable decision making needs to be across a business Mm -hmm. Um, when you work at a at a big organization that has a corporate social responsibility arm or a sustainability arm Mm. you know that the easy thing is for just those good decisions to remain within that business unit, right. um, but the opportunity is for it to be across everything. Expand and out, yeah. that time, um, you know, sort of two thousand and um, what, you know, 12, 2013, mm-hmm. is that's when people started to realise well, what is actually responsible decision making across a business, and right. and and that was great for me to see, and I was kind of constantly thinking, is this the model? You know, have something alongside a business mm. which delivers good, you know, charitable giving partnerships, uh, corporate social responsibility programs, or actually, is there a, a fundamentally diff- better way? And I um, was lucky enough to go to uh, Arkina's Launchpad, the, pro- um, mm. the 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 first accelerator program. I went to the launch day, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, wow. There is another model. It's called social enterprise, uh, and so when I um, so you remember
0: that quite clearly. Cause yeah, it's it, become quite a big part of your life now. A huge part of my that? life. Yeah, like, it was just here's like the oh, slide I've... that says social enterprise. Well, people were talking
1: about. It, I was like, gosh, this business, it does good. Wow. You know, right. well, um, and so I, um, you know, it was always. And I had a, a friend who worked at Akina, and mm-hmm. I um, then my husband and I decided that we wanted to move home to Wellington, right. um, and you know I said to Fonterra right um, you know I bought a house in Wellington um what you know so what and um they you know the decision was that it wasn't right for for me to do my job in Wellington um and so I said okay cool I'll um I'll I'll leave the cooperative which after 12 years was a a Mm, tough decision um and it's you know still you know an extraordinary organization and I will be a huge supporter of the co-op uh, but it was the right time for me, and so I'd, mm. I'd met with um, Alex Hannant uh, a couple of times, mm-hmm. and we had a few great conversations, and he needed somebody coming in with a different set of skills to support him, and, mm-hmm. and you know, a few interviews later, um, yeah, I, I joined the Akina team, which was
0: And at that time, amazing. how many people... Was it? Because it's kind of changed over the years. Yeah, hasn't it's gone it up and
1: down. Yeah. Um, there was probably at the time maybe about 15, 16 uh, okay. full time equivalents. I yeah. mean, it certainly went down um, and then it's come back up again. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were extraordinary people, mm-hmm. just extraordinary skills and from completely different backgrounds. And it took me about a year to feel that um, I had a voice and I was contributing um, mm-hmm. because I'd come from an organization. Um, where people knew me people Mm. knew the work that I did I didn't have to go through that explanation Mm. when I walked into a room or I got onto a project you know you were just knowing yourself before yeah and so to to not have that um meant that I was pretty exposed Mm. but God, that was a good thing, yeah. you know, because you do get in a bit of, you know, you yeah. know it's a bit easy otherwise, you know. Um, I and reckon it,
0: sometimes it's those challenging points that forces you to really push through and yeah. come up with new innovations and, you know, actually grow. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I
1: wasn't the expert. Yeah. At all, yeah. Sure. I was just learning <laughs> this thing, and from people who had such deep experience in community development and mm-hmm. social enterprise internationally, mm-hmm. um, it was an amazing, mm-hmm. difficult learning mm-hmm. um, journey, and it still is, you know. Uh, and so, so, when did
0: you join? Then was that two thousand? So what, two and a half years ago. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, two thousand and fifteen? No, two thousand and sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. Uh, in January. Yeah. Um Or February. Yeah, beginning of February, and. Um, you know, amazing time. We were yeah. growing as an organisation. We had the World Forum, yeah. the, you know, sort of nearly Coming 18 up. months later. Yep. Um, we also were really thinking about the sustainability of the organisation, what was required. There was mm-hmm. different, you know, things were happening and funding agreements and all this stuff. So, you know, from going into an organisation with 22,000 employees mm-hmm. with budgets that were set and handed out to people and you just manage those, mm-hmm. to suddenly having... To worry about payroll, mm. to worry about what was happening in six months time, to hold people's you know lives in your hand and the decisions that you're making was you know it, mm. well, you have such responsibility um, mm. that it was a really great opportunity, tough, lots of lots of really tough times, um, but man, I mean there has not been one day where I've thought you know, would I be anywhere else? Mm, that's um, so good to know.
0: hear. Often this podcast, we talk about purpose and whether people are kind of aligned with their purpose. And it sounds like you've found a place that really fits well. Absolutely. And, and it kind of The thing that strikes me is it kind of takes the background that you've got from the big corporate CSR perspective, but also having lived in Chicago and London and traveled to Hong Kong and all that, but then brings it, crystallizes it into something that you can actually contribute in a new way. yeah
1: and i I mean the great thing is about if you work in a small organization that attracts really really great people yeah everyone brings a different set of experiences and Mm -hmm. a different insight and if as long as you can create the culture whereby everyone feels they can contribute and you do have great decision making and that you can take people's insight and thoughts and experience and add that out to be a greater outcome Mm -hmm. then brilliant you know and and I'll admit that, you know, Akina doesn't always get it right. Mm. Um, And, you know, we're constantly evolving and learning as a relatively small new organisation. But, um, you know, just the people that I get to work with every day inside Akina, but but also the organisations that... I come in contact with and mm. and if I can help them by creating something for them to be more successful whether it's a procurement market or mm. an investment fund or a conversation that leads them to be more successful and deliver impact then mm. that's my purpose in life yeah, yeah. and that's it's so
0: good yeah. yeah I love it can you describe a little bit because some listeners won't be familiar as as familiar with Akina Foundation and what your remit is and what you're trying to do because we've got people listening in the UK and the US and Other places, yeah.
1: So, Um, you know, we've we're constantly evolving that mm -hmm. as Arcina, and I think that as a new sector evolves Mm -hmm. in any in any sector, um, those organisations that are part of that establishment and Mm involvement have to continually reassess what they're there to do Mm -hmm. and adapt as new things happen. So this year we've really looked at what our purpose is as an organisation with this changing world um, and this changing acceptance that um, social enterprise or enterprise can deliver and should deliver social and environmental impact. Mm -hmm. Um, So our role is not only as a partner now to government, but also as as an organisation within the sector is we want to transform the economy. We want to enable the conditions for enterprises that deliver impact Mm -hmm. to be seen as what enterprise should be. Social enterprise will always be at the heart of what we do because we truly believe the model of social enterprise is the epitome of what business should be. Mm -hmm. You should have the environment and the people at the heart of what you do in any decision. And social enterprise is a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. But we also recognise that it fits within a spectrum. If we can get all enterprise to think smarter and better, to deliver social and environmental impact, then gosh, won't, well, won't the world be a better place? Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is we have to create the conditions in which social enterprises can th- can thrive and flourish, but we also want to create an ecosystem where impact is values, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily valued in a financial way but it's valued for its contribution to a better world, either through the environmental impact it can have, but also significantly in the social space. And so our job is just to really help facilitate that through establishment of the big building blocks that are required and advocacy and work that we can do Mm. across the ecosystem, Mm -hmm. but then also helping social enterprises get what they need, whether it's access to a market, mm-hmm. access to capability where they can grow their business as well as their impact, um, but also how can we tell their stories mm. and how can we help them uh, you know, share the great stuff that they do. Yeah. Um, and you know, what a privilege it is to do that.
0: Yeah, no, well, that's great. I'm gonna ask a couple of questions now because as you know, I do a lot with social enterprises and I'm only asking these questions because I get asked them a lot and I know mm. some of the listeners will be curious. The term social enterprise, like you've just said, that many businesses—if—if if all businesses could have this in mind, you know—that the world would be a better place. Do you think there's a risk that social enterprise becomes a little subgroup? Uh, you know that those are the social enterprises, and they're the ones who do these things. Yeah. Or you know, as a as a term itself, is it the right term? Because um, so, one of the thing I've been coming across recently is the word impact, and impact seems to resonate with people in some ways, you know, impact enterprises or something like that. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's fun, and I think we have to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I really uh, react fondly to the term impact enterprise because mm-hmm. I think if we just use the word social, mm-hmm. we exclude the cultural side, we exclude the environmental side, we exclude the community side to a point. Yep. And so you're constantly going social and environmental enterprise you know? yes so impact <laughs> is you know is, is much more inclusive of mm. all of those important impact areas mm. um, but I think that we're at a position with a relatively small sector mm-hmm. with it really um, you know starting to push a little bit more into the mainstream of you know we have to ask the question do we need a definition mm-hmm. if we need a definition what does what should it be if you have a definition, what does that mean what 's restrictive or the benefit of it? Um, mm-hmm. are, are people in or out? what does that mean? you know and my very simple thought is if we concentrate on the impact, the rest of it will all happen mm-hmm. and ultimately all business should be focused on environmental Mm. and social impact Mm. over time hopefully all businesses will be what Mm. we define what arkina defines to be a social enterprise but that's not going to happen overnight so maybe we do need a time and we have a definition that we use Mm -hmm. but there's got to be benefit in using that definition but I really find it hard when we constantly have to say, "What is it?" or "What isn't it?" or "My social enterprise is better than your social enterprise." You know, social enterprise is just a model. There's Mm -hmm. multiple ways a social enterprise can work. Mm -hmm. You don't pick it off the shelf and apply it. And so, we—I think—we can lose focus if we just talk about definition or structure. I think if we focus and value the impact. Mm And that's what a consumer responds to, or a funder responds to, or an investor responds to, then over time, Mm. what we define as social enterprise will just become the norm. Mm.
0: Yeah, my hope is actually that when we watch back on this video in 20 years, that we realize that we've transcended the term, because, and it sounds so, I've said this before on the podcast, it sounds so obvious, but of course, businesses care about their employees, care about the environment, care about the, the... being productive members of society and producing something that people actually need, you know. Well, um,
1: I I mean, I don't think anyone could name a business that doesn't have a human in it. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, yes, there are businesses who don't deliver the positive social and environmental outcomes that society believes they should, but gosh, then society needs to tell them that. Mm. And then we see, we're we seeing it already. We're seeing a shift in the last 10 years for mm. businesses to be more conscious, to actually understand their role. Mm. Because it, we cannot rely on government or the charitable in that. Mm. The definition of social enterprise, um, you know, internationally, we've got to determine what it looks like for New Zealand. Um, you know, is the term social enterprise mm. relevant in a New Zealand context? I think that we're, you know, we're in an extraordinary position um, to be able to honour what actual you know, enterprise has been in our history. Um, you know, Māori enterprises have been trading for you know centuries and always at the heart of that was the social and the environmental outcome for mm-hmm. the iwi, mm-hmm. uh, for the hapū. And that's, gosh, what a thing to honour. What yeah. a thing to incorporate into how we bring... A modern approach um, to that, and and what do we learn from Mo- you know modern multi enterprises? And mm. you know there's some extraordinary organisations who, you know, 500 year strategies mm. where it is about guardianship, it is about handing it to the next generation mm. to contribute. It's that you know. tikanga, right? Yeah, the, it's the, it's absolutely the it's, legacy and exactly. The, and you know we've got the opportunity as New Zealand where you know the international social enterprise sector is looking at us yeah
0: well let's talk about that because you were just at the the world forum in scotland mm. returning to your roots in it, a was, way. it was i had
1: i had a very um wonderful moment yeah. uh, when the worlds came together um with a folk singer actually singing a song that my dad always sang ah. uh, and i was it was just lovely to think that these worlds have come together. You know? yeah. Um, but yeah. So I because was. I think lucky. one
0: of the comments that uh, I had heard was that Minister um, Pini Henare gave an address and he spoke in Maori, which was then like the only time that the indigenous language was, was yeah. used on stage, yep. which I thought was quite interesting. And it just comes back to the point you're making, which is what is it that's distinctive about New Zealand and our our social enterprise sector, um, and is there parts from maori tanga which can inform it and provide a foundation. I think the answer is yes, <laughs> and yes. I wrote an article about this, yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, is it, it is something that's unique and distinctive exactly. that we can actually recognize, value, yep. treasure, and do it a little bit differently. Because one of the things that, I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating. I'm constantly advocating for social enterprise, and I get people saying to me, oh, this is so new, it's, it's something that hasn't been done. And I'll say, you know, look at the UK. They've got a community interest company, which is a model, a legal model, which is going for 10 years. So surely we can look at Italy and Canada, the US, the UK, all these places, and take the best bits of what is done overseas and think it through before we apply it, Mm. take the best bits, drop the worst bits, and then come up with our own definitions and um, interpretations.
1: Yeah, and I think also, you know... Social enterprise is nothing new in New Zealand either. Yeah. Uh, there's organisations that have been going for, yeah, you know, a hundred years, mm. uh, even more so, and um, have been trading for environmental and social impact. Mm. It might not ever have been talked about in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we have? Um, you know, what can we highlight in our own history yep. that could contribute to that international growth of? impact through enterprise uh, and i think that if we can do that here in new zealand in a relatively small country with a accessible and open government yes with a strong philanthropic sector mm. then you know if we can do it well we can share that mm. uh, internationally and the one thing that i think we should be really proud about is we could actually be a beacon for showing that actually indigenous enterprise is Extremely valuable in any community, mm. and how can we help tell that story and celebrate that? Whether it's in a Te Ao Māori context, whether it's in an in, in, you know, Indigenous Australian context, the First Nation context in, in Canada, etc. etc. Mm. And I think that that's something hugely um, exciting for us, mm. and I think we've got such great stories that New Zealand can tell, uh, which will not only be impressive for other countries, but will be something exciting for our young people that Mm. they can then see themselves in enterprise, maybe for the first time, Mm. because we've got this perception of what business is, and a lot of young people wouldn't see themselves in that. Mm. They would see it being, you know, it's a relatively conservative, um, you know, white middle-class or upper-class older male who's on the board of these big businesses. Well, why don't we celebrate the fact that some of our best entrepreneurs are actually moldy entrepreneurs from 200, 300, 400 years, mm. years ago mm. who have done significant trade deals with China mm. even before the word free trade was even invented. So these types of uh, you know, mm. examples is, well, how can we encourage people to see themselves and to feel confident that their strengths their skills are something that could find a market. Yeah. And um, you know there's some extraordinary organizations doing exactly that and all we want to do at Akina is is help them understand what we can learn from them, uh, understand how we can be more relevant um, and more supportive of communities helping themselves and understanding how to unlock that strengths that they have. Mm. And That's exciting for us Mm. as an organisation.
0: That's great. And ultimately it's about telling stories, isn't it? Because people connect with the stories and sometimes people don't even know what's going on around the corner. And I think that was what the World Forum that was held in Christchurch, you know, that was... 1600 or so people wasn't it sort yep. of coming together and it was a lot about telling stories and being inspired by oh you're doing that Exactly. You know it's <laughs>
1: and it is that connection it's people realizing that you know they're not alone for a start being mm. um you know a, a small to medium-sized business being an entrepreneur being a startup it can be quite lonely mm. um and you might not have all the skills you need so how do you work inside a network or a community, and whereby you could maybe access those skills? You mm. could talk um, and 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 help somebody understand impact, while somebody else could give you the financial skills that you might need. And yep. and how do we enable that? And how do we enable particularly the community to be at the heart of it? I think. What we see um, as, as as our kina and, and the organisations like us is we have to get people to really understand the impact that their enterprises are making now mm-hmm. or that they want to make and understand is it the impact that... We want. Mm. How does it fit within some of these really big uh, systemic problems that we have in our country and, and internationally, and how can you contribute to the solving of that? Mm. Um, and those are hard questions. It's it's tough, um, you know, to look within your own business or um, you know if, in your own idea that you might have mm. and question, am I am I the right person to solve that problem? Do I know somebody who has that problem? Have I spoken to them? Mm am i listening to what they say if i do speak to them and am i creating a solution that actually meets their needs that's not easy Mm -hmm. it's much easier to create a business model on your own Um, and so what we want to do as akina and, and 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 other organizations like us is how do we walk alongside asking those right questions how do we connect people with others who might be doing great stuff yeah um, that they could learn from, or they could actually collaborate together and do even better stuff. Yeah. So that, that's the role that we can play as that networker, the facilitator, mm-hmm. the enabler of others, mm-hmm. not necessarily always having to deliver the capability directly ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I think we were both at the event at the Wellington Zoo now, about a month ago, at the yep. time of recording this. And I think one of the things that came out for me from getting you know a couple hundred people together. Um, was actually something that Samantha Jones said at the very end, um, which is, it was like the final word, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was great. But it was basically saying, this is hard. Yeah. This is not easy. If you, wanted to, if you want an easy path, then choose a different business model. Absolutely. Because having to explain how social enterprise works is not easy when you go to the bank and they say, okay, what, how does
1: this, exactly. you know,
0: so I think that's... Well, I
1: think what's harder is you're trying to solve a social or environmental problem mm. that's not easy yeah it's it's not you can't just put something a layer of it on top and hope that your intervention might solve the problem that's yeah. underneath once you learn about the impact or you under, deeply understand the problem in which you are trying to contribute a solution to that becomes a real responsibility yeah. it becomes something that you know you, you you know you may never do in your lifetime and how might you help take one step forward mm. in solving it how do we help one person who can get a better outcome as a result of our intervention and that's that's you know that's pretty huge mm. it's um, you know and and i think sometimes people underestimate that mm. um or they may be not solving the problem yeah. If they don't get it. Yeah. You know? Well, I like
0: what you said as well. What is the problem? Because sometimes people have the great solution but they haven't really thought through what the actual yeah. problem is. And you know,
1: sometimes when I and I you know, and I out of our keenness see that social entrepreneurs probably the least. Um some of you know, the um some of our team are deeply connected um and, and walk alongside organizations every single day. But yeah. you know, some of the questions that we have to ask are, have you spoken to anyone who has that problem? Right. If the answer is no You need to go and do some work, yeah. (laughs) Because too often, and I think we've seen this time and time again, and not just in the social enterprise space, but Mm. you know, in the enterprise spaces, that we might have all good intentions, Mm. but you, if you aren't experiencing that problem, Mm. how would you ever know what the solution would be? Yeah. So it's about making sure you've actually got the person at the heart of your enterprise who is you want to help, Um, and if they're three or four, five or six degrees away from you, you've got to be questioning whether you're a social enterprise. Mm, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, this is where it gets fascinating is who who is a social enterprise and who isn't, I guess. Yeah, um, and a
1: question I, I really... Yeah, you know, I I stay away from our answering. Yep. I mean, Akina, we have our definition of social enterprise, and and there's a reason for that. We we want to be able to start somewhere. We want to be able to to test it. We're using it for the procurement platform, the for, uh, forward that we've just recently launched yep. to connect certified social enterprises with buyers. But we've done that for a for a reason. We've done mm. that to reduce risk mm. to those buyers. Um, but what it has meant is that yes, sometimes you know you have to. Have a tough conversation with somebody yeah. um, but we've still got to as a collective society actually ask that question of what is a social enterprise yeah. um, but you know i don't want to get into a debate about what is and what isn't and my view is let's focus on the impact yeah you know?
0: well that's where i always come back mm-hmm. to because i i like you i talk with a lot of social enterprises and meet with a lot of people and I've been reading a lot as well (laughs) because um, as you know there's some legal research that's going on right now Mm -hmm. that Jackson Rowland is kind of heading from within Akina but working with Jane Horan up in Auckland and then I'm giving some legal input on that which is a really amazing process we've Mm. interviewed a couple dozen social enterprises but where I'm coming back to or thinking through is this um, the term mission and impact and the overseas writing that I've been looking at, and I'm happy to send you a summary of some of it, is um, is the entity, forget about the legal structure of the entity, let's just don't even, let's not talk about it, is, is the prioritization on the mission and the purpose over the profit? And the reason that that's important is that if you don't differentiate and you just say, well, just do both, then ultimately there's gonna be a cross in the road where you have to yeah. choose and if the directors or or the trustees or whoever aren't given any guidance then they may end up going down the profit route um, as opposed to is this pushing forward the mission or the purpose Mm -hmm. which I think it's been helpful for me to get away from the complexity of um, you know what percentage goes to this and um, what phrasing do you use to express if you're a social enterprise or not, it's yeah. actually a bigger picture. Is it my is. point? It is, and
1: I think you know that the governance of of that purpose mm. is should be absolutely, you know, critical mm. to the organisation. And whatever structure they use, whatever the term they use to describe themselves, yep. whatever financial model they use to to fund their impact, you know, that can come with it. But ultimately, it is around how is that impact governed? Mm. And what, like you say, what decisions are made in order for that impact to continue? Mm. And it, you know, we've got to have a question of does that need to be something that the government needs to mandate? Mm. Does that, you know, they do that really, really well at the moment mm. through the t- charitable structure that already exists. So, mm. but what are the things that we want to do to enable the other barriers that exist yeah. um, because of, legal structures or a lack of understanding or you know um, whatever it may be how can we help re- remove mm. those and, and in
0: particular access to capital right access so, to capital
1: is a critical yeah. one um, but also so is access to markets yeah often when we're going out and talking to social enterprises you know they say well if I had a legal structure then I could call myself something it's mm. like well the legal structure doesn't stop you doing that it yep. won't enable you you know what are the other things that are actually at the heart of that mm-hmm. what's the things that we really need to to understand before we think about what are any solutions mm-hmm. and that's what i really love about the work that's being mm-hmm. done you know being led by Jane and Jackson and the support mm-hmm. of of you guys and and, and others is yep. you know it isn't starting at the solution it's actually saying well let's talk about the barriers yep. and let's then have a process of saying, well, what's some solutions to removing those barriers yeah. uh, or ev- hopefully at least reducing them? Yeah, you know? yeah,
0: that's right. Well, that's the, that's the positive nature of it is it, the report will come out early next year. That's yep. the plan. So um, for those listening, watch the space and um, yes. see what it says. You know, interesting um, ride ahead. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that people may not be aware of, mm. but things are... Moving, which is which is really good, in your role um, just connected with the government and things, how will that um, play out in terms of if you if a report comes out recommending one thing or another, um, where do you sit within policy and government? I guess how much can you advocate for a particular? We need let's say just as an example. We need a new legal structure that sits between charitable trust and limited liability company. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, our role will always be as an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, it will always be as um, you know a voice to help, hopefully, influence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't control the legislative program of a government. We, you know, don't see. The other priorities that exist, um, and you know, the more I get engaged with government, the more I see the complexity of it all. Um, so all we can do is provide the evidence, provide the stories, provide detail of what the opportunity could be, and then have a conversation about well, what does that look like from the government lens? Um, because ultimately, you know, it's got to be a priority for them. Um, it, in order for them to be able to to want to do things mm-hmm. so our opportunity is just to show them yeah. how it uh, and i to think showcase the need yeah right? and i think we're you know we we i think we struggle to um i well we, we fail to identify um as a sector um the opportunity that we've got under the living standards framework mm-hmm. it is and i said this at the at the world uh, at our um social uh, the aotearoa social enterprise forum is it is our superpower. We are now being given, as, a, as social enterprises, community enterprises, impact enterprises, environmental enterprises, we've been given a framework in which our impact now has currency. Mm. Now, that's all still, still to come out as far as the indicators that they will use and how the budget will be set next year. But the power of being able to say, my impact is helping contribute to these things that this government, future government, whatever shade of government, will care about, mm. and it's not just the GDP. Mm. But I think what social enterprises have the real, the real power is that we not only contribute to the economic well-being of a country, but we also contribute to the other forms of capital that mm. that, that country cares about, and mm. New Zealand is leading the world when it comes to this. When we're in Scotland, people just couldn't believe... That we had a government that talked about things apart from the financial contribution that businesses right. made, they were jealous of us. <laughs> um, I mean, they one la, um, you know one um, amusing statement was a bunch of Australians sitting next to me when Penny Henare, so our minister, the Minister of Community and Voluntary Sector, got up and yep. and spoke so passionately about what enterprise means to him. Um, they turned to me and they said, how unfair, you've got Jacinda and him. <laughs> um, but I think we've got a time, um, and it was it was certainly supported with the last government as well, we've got a time where social enterprise can be seen as a significant contributor to wellbeing. Yeah. We've got an opportunity, but we've got to harness that opportunity. And we've got to be louder, we've got to be more confident, and we've got to understand the contribution that we're making, both from the impact side, but also In the language of a capital society you've got to be talking about the economic contribution Mm -hmm. because if you don't do that you are just constantly put to the side and so going in and talking about both sides of what a social enterprise does means that we're doubly powerful and so what we want to do is start influencing and showing that to government so that when we may need a policy lever or we may need a legislative you know Um, action whatever it is we've demonstrated the importance of our sector Mm. and we're you know we're grateful and um you know confident with our partnership with government that at least we've got the door open yeah the opportunity is there but the worry that i have is it cannot be just akina's voice it's about bringing together the sector it's about hearing from other people within the sector externally from the sector what are their needs what are, what's their views what do they see as as the requirement mm. where do they see things like definition going what do they see think you know investment needs to look like yep. or markets need to look like and if we have that strong voice we don't need 100% alignment because that would you know that would be a bit boring but we do need to have the discussion mm. and so if you are interested in social enterprise well let us know yeah you know let other people know let your community know let you know this is something that um you know needs to be more than just what i call and what others have called the disco Mm -hmm. you know yes we all get it i get it i know why social enterprise is an important part of our economy Mm -hmm. we need that more than just you know the akina team or the Stephen Mose of the world open who's committed. Open the windows, committ- yeah. Open dis- yeah and, and have the discussion because yeah. the more we do that, the more it will remove uh, misconception or confusion or the conversation about is it this or is it that or yeah. it isn't this. Um, and then we get into the real power of it, which is what are we doing to contribute to a better world yeah. um, and a more equal and prosperous and sustainable world? And you know, our time is now.
0: Yeah, I, um, I hear you. And I think it comes back to me that telling the stories. And you'd be surprised how many people in government actually listen to this podcast because I'm constantly meeting people and um, I know some of them are listening to this right now. So it's it's kind of um, the podcast is another another platform, I guess, to get stories yeah, out and, and, and share with people. And I
1: think that, you know, coming being born and raised in Wellington, um, I think that... I'm lucky to understand a bit of the, you know, dynamics Mm. of, of how government work. And, you know, there are some extraordinary people working right across government. You know, policy advisors, you know, people who have been you know, working 20, 30 years in, in government departments doing extraordinary things, the more we can talk about social enterprise or the importance of enterprise mm. to them, it's helping them understand maybe a part of the world that they're not familiar with. Yeah. Maybe they haven't been in a traditional business or working with the social enterprises or even, you know, interacting with, with the charitable sector. So how can we start to have conversations about everything rather than trying to segment stuff and... I'm really excited about that because we've got 11 ministries which are part of our cross agency uh, steering group where they come together to talk about what social enterprise means for their agencies mm. and that's not the ministers that's not the CEOs of these you know organizations mm. this is the committed you know public servants who mm. actually are there to make a difference yeah. and the more we can help them understand the power of social enterprise the more likely it will be that they see the value in it and they want to make the change not just we constantly have to advocate and, yeah. and you know and fly the flag outside of parliament buildings you yeah. know so that's a big part of the work that we do is lots of cups of tea lots of coffees lots of conversations yeah. um and and things like this this podcast is an important part of that too mm.
0: yeah that's great I want to finish, but I have one last question, which is not related to social enterprise. But as a woman in a leadership role, I'm just curious what you think we can do to encourage more women coming up to, um, I guess, to aspire and to and to push themselves to to be in leadership.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I I often get asked that. I think that um, it's not just about women. I think it's also about you know all diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately it's about the opportunity Mm -hmm. how do we make maybe our lives a little bit more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. by enabling access to somebody who wouldn't necessarily get the access and that might not necessarily be a job Mm -hmm. but maybe it's insight maybe Mm -hmm. it's connection maybe it's bringing whatever we do to them Mm -hmm. rather than expecting them to come to to us and Mm -hmm. I think I've been very lucky uh, in my career in the fact that you know I've never had and I'm, I'm very I understand my privilege in this I've never had a time where I felt I was being discriminated against because I was a woman mm. um, and how do I make sure that I'm not doing the same to somebody who doesn't look like me mm. who doesn't have you know had the same privilege or upbringing that I did yeah. um, and that's hard it's hard to do it's hard to accept that you have to do it but my goodness, you're a better organisation or a better person yeah, if you can do it. It's the diversity, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's it doesn't always mean that you get it right. Mm. It doesn't always mean that you are attractive. To somebody who comes from Mm. uh, either a different background or, you know, whatever that diversity is. Um, And so you've got to make yourself sometimes relevant to that and and put yourself in positions where it might be uncomfortable or actually saying no to stuff Mm. and allowing somebody else to step in. Mm. And I think that's, you know, in my role, that's something that I can do more and more because, yeah, Mm. I get invited to do speeches, but I might not be the best person to do that speech
0: talk to them talk to them give them
1: open the door because the door was open to me and i look back at five or six key people in my life who Mm. opened a door when they could have opened it to somebody else Mm. and um the role and ultimately
0: you used the word you know pay it forward earlier on how is it that each of us can pay it forward to whoever it is because all of us will have points in our life where there was a bit of luck or a bit of an opportunity that we didn't deserve, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's multiple times in my life, and I'm sure for uh, I'm, what I'm thinking is the listeners, you know, who are the people that they can open the door for that wouldn't have the door opened, um, yeah. which is ultimately what I'm hoping this podcast does. It gets people thinking, and oh, maybe I'll try this or that. So,
1: yeah, and you know, yeah. it's, it's hugely conf- <clears throat> confronting to think, you know, are you surrounding yourself by people who look like you? Yeah. And if you are, You've got to make a change. Mm. And that's, you know, we've, as Akina, um, you know, we're, we're continually, mm. um, you know, we're, we're at the start of that journey. Mm. Um, and we've got to ask those difficult questions and then say, well, okay, why is that? Yep. And what do we do to be better? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's yeah. that's about evolving and being honest and Yeah, getting on with it
0: we do our best right yeah well it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and so having um, waited for months and months to get our schedules and work it out it's been really interesting and I think the thing that comes through like we've talked a lot about social enterprise but it was the backstory and understanding Mm. you know Brazil your father passing moving to the UK going on a helicopter trip and realizing <laughs> you wanted to move home like some of those insights I think help to paint the picture of what you're doing now and how you're contributing which is um, yeah it's been really special so thank yeah. you for opening my pleasure and, thank and you sure. for inviting me no problem well I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Louise I found it was fascinating just to understand more about her background what's led her to working in this social enterprise space and also to get some questions answered that I get all the time and hearing her perspective was really helpful If you enjoyed this episode, then consider leaving a rating and review for it, check out some of the previous episodes, and tell a friend, because it's only through people like you listening and spreading the word that the podcast will grow. Until next time!